You're listening to The South Stands, a Buckeye football podcast by Ohio State fans for Ohio State fans on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Welcome back to The South Stands, everyone. From San Francisco, I'm your host, Zach Moore. I'm joined by fellow South Stands contributor, Tim Gallagher from Connecticut. Tim, how are you today? Fantastic. Excellent. Today, we are thrilled to have an audience with another special guest. He is an excellent staff writer for The Athletic, covering both Buckeye football and basketball, going into his seventh season on the Ohio State Beat. You also know him as the co-host of the 4 to 6 with A&B podcast, presented by The Athletic, which, by the way, should be required listening for every informed Ohio State fan. His name is Bill Landis, and you can follow Bill on Twitter at at BillLandis25. That's at BillLandis25. Bill, welcome to the South Stands. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I hope I can live up to that uh, very, I don't know, that might, that might have been the nicest introduction anyone's ever given to me before. I'm a little, uh, I'm a little taken aback <laughs> by it, but, uh, but I really appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, we're, we're big fans of your work here. We reference it all the time. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks so much. You were in Streetsboro this morning visiting 2021 Ohio State Commit defensive tackle Michael Hall. Uh, how did that visit go, and, and what can you tell us about Hall? I was, uh, you know, to to let people inside a little bit. I was in Streetsboro the last two mornings oh, because because wow. <laughs> uh, I mixed something up yesterday, so I had to go back up there today to talk with Mike. Uh, it was great. One, it was it was great to see. Like it wasn't actually football. They were doing some seven on seven stuff, and I don't know if actually they're allowed to do that, but maybe I maybe I'm causing problems for Streetsboro, Streetsboro now. But uh, I was just watching the lineman workout and Mike workout. It was good to see some football stuff. Um, it was the first time I talked to Mike. He's a really great kid. He's young. I didn't realize how young he is. He mm. he just turned seventeen. Oh wow! Uh, so when he gets to Ohio State next June, or even if he early enrolls, he'll be seventeen years old. So he'll be very young for a college football player. And he sort of looks it in the face. He's still got a little bit of a baby face, but he's a, he's a monster kid. He's six, three, he's about 300 pounds. Um, he's put on 30 pounds. He said since last year's, uh, junior or I guess for him, yeah, junior football season for him. Um, and it was fun. I, I really enjoyed talking to him. He's, he's got an interesting story in terms of how he sort of rose up the recruiting rankings and kind of how he got discovered. And then, uh, he's built a really good relationship with Larry Johnson and, and Ryan day. And he's the kind of kid that, you know, once Ohio State offers, he's probably going to go to Ohio State. But he did have very serious national uh, consideration from a lot of schools because he's one of the top defensive tackles in the country. So I'll have a story on that uh, later this week. Great, great. We look forward to reading that. Uh, there is one other bit of recent recruiting news I think we should probably touch on. Last week, Devontae Smith, a three-star cornerback prospect out of Cincinnati LaSalle, who was previously committed to Ohio State's 2021 class, announced his decommitment. Smith has since committed to Alabama. Bill, you covered this story for The Athletic. Was this a mutual parting of ways, or was Smith a player Ohio State really hoped to keep in that class? It's it's hard to wrap my head around that, to be honest. Um, my read on it is that it's a situation where Devontae Smith like looked at, one, Ohio State's roster, two, the class, and three, what could potentially be coming to the class, and, and maybe felt it was a little crowded. But I don't think it was mutual in the sense that like Ohio state was okay. Just sort of pushing him aside and letting him go. I think if he wanted to stay in a class, he, he could have stayed in the class and, but he had this opportunity also to go to Alabama. Alabama actually offered him before Ohio state did okay. kind of interesting. And 
I did not know this at the time. I, I learned this after the fact, after he committed, that he's Sean Alexander's first cousin, the, the you know, the Alabama great running back oh, yeah. from a couple of years ago, played for the Seattle Seahawks. And I didn't know that. And apparently Sean was a, a part of Nick Saban's recruiting pitch to get uh, Devontae to go to Alabama. So at the moment, he is in a less crowded situation in that class. Certainly, it will become more crowded with the way that Alabama recruits, especially the way it recruits defensive backs. Mm -hmm. And maybe he's just, I don't know if it was fit or he just wanted to try something different. He did say Alabama was his dream school, which I found a bit odd considering that Alabama offered him before Ohio State and then he committed to Ohio State, I think, two days after Ohio State offered. Hmm. Um, So I'm not sure what the mix-up was there. I think Ohio State will be fine. There, there's some other guys in this class that they're still recruiting. Um, Jordan Hancock, uh, who's committed to Clemson. Jalen Davies, who is committed to Oregon. I think both of those guys are, are still in play for Ohio State. So they'll be okay cornerback-wise, but it was an important position for them. And, and you know, I don't want to downplay losing a guy. I think it matters right now, but they can make up for it. Is there any concern for Ohio State fans? Not so much in losing this particular player. He, he looks like a good, solid player. I'm sure he's a really good kid. But it's not exactly like losing Jackson Carmen to Clemson, I don't think. But is there a greater concern maybe that Alabama could be planting flags down there in the Cincinnati area and might, might present some serious competition for other prospects in the future? I don't know if there's growing concern just based off this one thing. Alabama's sort of been in Ohio – Kind of intermittently, they were here, if you guys remember, a couple of years ago when the Glenville guys, Marshawn Lattimore, Eric Smith, and to a lesser extent, Marcellus Jones, were coming out of Glenville. Alabama was very heavily on all three of those players, and that was a pretty epic Ohio State versus Alabama showdown. I don't think there's been too many like that since. It's, it's been here or there that Bama's been in the state. I don't know. I think I think Bama sometimes likes to toy with people and, and <laughs> sort of like just be annoying. Um, and that's not to say they don't want Devontae Smith, but but I think there is some calculation involved on their end when they try to do things like this. I don't think that like we're on the precipice of Nick Saban and Alabama fully coming into Ohio on a, on a regular basis, but okay. you'll definitely see them here from time to time. Okay, good. Tim, any thoughts on the Devontae Smith uh, decommitment? No, I mean, I've got a good friend who's uh, an Alabama fan, and you know, we were going back and forth about exactly these things. I said, you know, Thanks for thanks for kind of unloading sort of the back end of the recruiting class for us and opening up some more space <laughs> for some other things. No, no disrespect to Devontae Smith. But I said, you know, I'm not really very happy about Alabama having their hand in our cookie jar, although it does happen from time to time in both directions. Uh, so, you know, can't yeah, it's can't can't really read too much into it. It's hard to it's hard to really say. Mm-hmm. Um, I also find like yeah, we like Ohio State gets our their fair share of recruits out of Cincinnati, but like I don't know, there's something weird about Cincinnati in my mind. Like they're at times I find them barely. I find a lot of people not to be Ohio State fans in Cincinnati, uh, and I find the town to almost want to secede from the state of Ohio at times. <laughs> And so, you know, I think there's some of that going on down in Cincinnati, too. There's tons of Ohio State fans and, and there's a lot of it down there. But it's not it's it's, it's not as uh, it, there's not as much of a fervor down there for Ohio State uh, as there is in, say, Cleveland or, you know, some of the Akron, Canton, Dayton, some of the other towns in Ohio. I always I've always found that curious. I don't know why it is. Uh, some of it is the University of Cincinnati, I think. Right. Um, but. You know, I wasn't all that surprised by this. Okay. Um, well, Bill, my plan for this Q&A originally was to start with the fortunes of the 2020 Ohio State Buckeyes and, and then move into some fun, bigger picture topics. But now I'm thinking I'd like to flip that script 
and start with a big picture topic that has been of great interest. You might even call it a preoccupation for all of us here at the South Stands. And maybe it's because we're older fans, we're a little longer in the tooth. Uh, and that is the current state of the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry. Your partner in crime at The Athletic, Ari Wasserman, was rattling some cages on this topic last week on Twitter. We'd love to get your take on what we're seeing in the rivalry right now. Before we do that, just for the benefit of our listeners, I wanted to mention a few numbers here just to kind of set uh, set the table. Uh, Ohio State has won the last eight in a row over Michigan, 17 of the last 20. As we all know, Jim Harbaugh's 0-5 against Ohio State since becoming Michigan's head coach in 2015, only once since he took the helm. Has this game been legitimately close? That was the 2016 double overtime game in Columbus. Against Harbaugh, Ohio State's averaging 44 points a game, winning by an average margin of 19. The results only seem to be getting more lopsided if we're talking about 62-39 in 2018, 56-27 last year. And when Michigan dominated this rivalry, Bill, probably before you were born, <laughs> that was from the late 80s through the 90s, the problem could be attributed to one coach. That was John Cooper, who for some reason couldn't coach his way out of a paper bag against Michigan, despite usually having the better roster. But what has to be troubling for Michigan fans is this nearly two decades of haplessness against Ohio State spans four different head coaches. Lloyd Carr, who finished his career losing six of seven to Ohio State. Rich Rod, who was 0-3, followed by Brady Hoke, who was 1-3, but that one victory has an asterisk, right? It was against the, the, the Tattoo Gate team of 2011 with interim coach Luke Fickle. And now Jim Harbaugh, who's 0-5. Bill, my question's for you. Actually, there are two. Are we witnessing the death rattle of what was once a great rivalry? And is Ohio State's dominance in this game now the natural order of things? Man, I, I, that's those are two really good questions. Um, it's it's hard for me to say no to either one um, based off off of recent results and and what happened. You know, prior to my time on the beat, I didn't cover the the Jim Trestle era, but this is like you said, kind of when when this all started and, and flipped in Ohio State's favor in in a way that I don't think anyone ever expected. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I'm quite ready to say that we're in the midst of the death, death rattle or we're on the, the precipice of it, I, I would want to hold off on that maybe till I see another game or two between Jim Harbaugh and, and Ryan Day, mm -hmm. um, even though Ryan Day has largely had his number, obviously, as a coordinator and a head coach the last two years. Mm -hmm. I, I would hold off on, I think, making that assertion just yet. And I would hold off, I guess, on on asserting that Ohio State is just going to be operating at this level in perpetuity where it's beating Michigan by, you know, 30 points every year. Right. Um, even even last year's game was was close, felt close anyway for maybe a half in the, in the third quarter. It didn't it didn't feel out of hand and then boom, like all, all of a sudden it was over. And that, that was kind of the way it was the year before too. It happened a little earlier in that game, but these the last two years they've just they've not been gamed, but you know, 2016 was a great game. 2017 was a really good game when, when Dwayne had to come in in Ann Arbor. Like those, those are wins for Ohio State. And, and when you're talking about this kind of game, the win is all that matters. I don't really think it particularly matters how the win comes. Hmm. The last two years, notwithstanding, it, this has been a little bit closer of a game, which leads me to believe that it can maybe get back to that. But if you're on the Ohio State side of it or you're of the mind that, that it won't ever get back to, to something close or respectable or even something where Michigan starts winning again, uh, the, the recruiting rankings I think would, would be pretty strong evidence to support your claim because Michigan's just not recruiting up the snuff. But the thing with that is though, it's like that's kind of been the way of it historically. Like Michigan has had good players and, and certainly has had NFL caliber players and, and throughout the history of its program has not recruited poorly. But I think for the most part, at least maybe for the last 
30 years, 30, 40 years, Ohio State was probably the most the more talented team more often than not. So that part of it's not new. Mm. And I don't know if the gap is widening widening or not. I just, there's probably not enough information available to, to say that with any sort of certainty. But but it feels like the gap is widening. I mean, look at what Ohio State's done the last couple of years in recruiting, really starting in 2017 and what Michigan has done. Michigan's only had one class like in this span since Harbaugh's been there that would even sort of rise to the level of being worthy of, of discussion among the best classes in the country. That was in 2016. And most of those guys, if not all of them, I don't know the roster are out of the program already. So until they start recruiting a little better, I'm having a hard time seeing how, how it gets closer, but I, I'm curious to see what happens with this kid they have coming in in the next recruiting class, JJ McCarthy, this quarterback. And if Jim Harbaugh, who I think is not on the hot seat, um, I don't think is in any jeopardy of losing his job anytime in the next couple of years. Hmm. If he finally gets his guy out of high school, develops him, and like he is the guy long term, because I think this position has held Michigan back, his quarterback position, then then maybe that can change things some. Because if you have an NFL quarterback, that evens the playing field a little bit. But until that happens, that position's been so patchwork for them. They haven't had uh, much of an identity offensively, I think, since since Harbaugh's been there. At least it's been it's been in flux for a couple of years. You know, defense is good. Brian Day obviously figured it out pretty good the last two years, but but I still think Don Brown's a good defensive coordinator and they recruit decently well and develop decently well on that side of the ball, um, they need to figure out what they want to be offensively and figure out the quarterback position before I'd even consider the idea that, that Michigan could maybe swing this thing back to more even ground. On the recruiting question, your colleague Ari uh, Wasserman had a guest appearance on the Michigan podcast a couple of months back, and the host of that show told Ari, and I think I'm getting this quote right, I'm paraphrasing, that Michigan will tell you in their approach to recruiting that of the top 300 high school prospects in a given year, 100 won't meet the academic standards. Another 100 or so Michigan won't pursue because of perceived character issues, bag men, et cetera, leaving 100 or so that they would recruit. Your colleague, Andy Staples, also at The Athletic, I remember him saying in a piece, I believe it was last year, saying that Michigan is unwilling to wade into the same recruiting waters as Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, what is their recruiting strategy? What is what are they trying to achieve then if they're not willing to to go after the same level of talent as Ohio State? Moral superiority, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know yeah. what it would be. Garbage. Yeah, garbage. <laughs> I don't know what it would be other than that. Look, like I, I think we all get that though. Know, there's some gray area in recruiting, and I want to be careful with what I say because I don't want to level accusations against anybody flippantly, but. I think most of us know the game in recruiting. It's not all by the book, and I think that's okay because mm. everybody, for the most part, does it. Mm. The idea that like we don't want to do that and, and that's not who we are and we have higher standards, like that's fine, but then don't pretend like you're a big boy in college football because as long as you're operating that way, you're not going to be. <laughs> and I'm not saying that Michigan has to start going out there and, and you know drop bags like Ole Miss was doing back in the day. Um, <laughs> But I think I think um, they can uh, broaden their horizons a little bit and who they might consider to be a quote unquote Michigan man. And I don't even know like that that math the one hundred they can't take academically, one hundred they won't take because of character issues. I highly doubt it's that high. And that's true. Like there's guys at Ohio State won't take because of academics, and there's guys at Ohio State won't take because of character. If you look at the guy, like the guys that the Ohio State has brought in in the last four or five recruiting classes, like they're taking guys who were down to Ohio state and Stanford. They have not had much in the way of, of off the field stuff. They have had some, right. um, But they have not had, they have not had any that would like 
fortify Michigan stance. Like we don't take guys with character. Like there are plenty of guys you can find who are really good football players who aren't character issues. And if you can't find them, that's your problem. And Michigan's not been able to do that. The idea, like I, I, I don't want to disparage the kids they've taken because they're earning scholarships and that's great. They're getting set up for life. Michigan's a good school. They're getting a great opportunity there, but don't pretend that taking guys who were ranked 800th nationally out of Massachusetts is like the only way you're able to operate. It's not, <laughs> you're just not recruiting hard enough. Right. You're not, you're not evaluating well enough. You're not recruiting hard enough. So I guess they can keep making excuses, but it's not going to get them anywhere. And, and until they're willing to put in the work, I think of evaluation and recruiting and expanding and figure out, figuring out where they could go and like developing a plan that is even identifiable, which they don't have at the moment, right. then they're going to keep looking like this. Tim, the last time we talked about the High State Michigan rival, you and I had parted ways. I, I really feel like the rivalry is is on life support. Certainly, as a a rivalry that has national interest, that is considered one of the greatest rivalries in, in, in all of sports. Well, I mean, I think it depends on 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 where you are, right? So, you know, nationally, yeah, I I don't know that I disagree with you that I think it's a bit on life support. And if you live in California and you're just a general college football fan, you may look at Ohio State and Michigan and say, yeah, this this sucks for the last twenty years. Like, what is this? Um, I agree with that. Um, and I, and I think maybe this gets to my point about this is that, um, I think what's missing, uh, from the Michigan side is I just think culturally, I just, I just don't know that they care. Mm-hmm. Um, when I talk to my friends who are Michigan grads and when I talk to alumni and all this, like, like they feign this arrogance of like, Oh, academics and yeah, football, like, uh, you know, they, they, feign that, but they, they don't really, they don't, uh, they don't care that little. Um, even as much as they're trying to convince you that they do. Um, but I think that like, when I think back to the nineties and what we went through with coach Cooper, having the better team every single year, um, and then losing to Michigan, um, it, it, like I was mad for a year. I was mad (laughs) for 365 days and waiting for that game to come back just to lose again. Uh, and that built up over a long period of time. And it wasn't just me. I think it was everybody in the state of Ohio, everybody who's a fan of Ohio State. And I think culturally, we said never again can that happen. And that's why when Tressel said what he said at the basketball game, you know, basically predicting, right, and, and, and almost guaranteeing a win, right, in whatever it was, you know, 187 days or whatever, um, that, that went so far with people. And then he, he went, went out and won is is I think that 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 we've culturally placed so much importance on that game, and I don't think Michigan has. Uh, and I think until they do, they're going to continue to lose. Um, and I don't think Harbaugh. I mean, I think he wants to win. I think he tries. I think he does what he can. But I don't think he sees it the same way that people in Ohio see it. Hmm. Uh, and I think it's one of the big things that the rivalry is missing. Uh, is that if you go watch an Alabama Auburn game, mm-hmm. I, it, it, both sides of that thing, and it doesn't matter who's where in the standings, and typically Alabama's ahead, like that is a hard nosed football game every single year, regardless of where people are mm-hmm. um, in the standings. And I just think that's missing uh, from Michigan. And I think it's until that gets fixed, I, I don't think it's going to be that interesting uh, nationally, but I think it's always going to be that interesting to people in Ohio. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm actually looking at a tweet here from College Football Country. These are records in college football's biggest rivalry since 2000. Funny enough, Auburn, Alabama, Auburn actually leads that series over the last 20 years, 11 to 9, which is pretty remarkable considering what 
Nick Saban has done since he's gotten there. I think Malzahn, Gus Malzahn is four and six against Bama, which is pretty impressive. And to me, that's what's missing from this rivalry is not only competitive balance on the field, but also uh, in the case of Auburn in, in that rivalry, they've played in two national title games over that 20 year span. They've won a national title over that span. They've won SEC titles, not and not just beating Alabama on the field, but they've won conference titles played for national championships. And that's what's missing for me with Michigan. I mean, their last Big Ten title was what, 2004? And they're certainly not beating Ohio State on the field. And and they've had trouble staying nationally relevant. And until they do, I agree with you. I think that's uh, uh, it, it's not going to be as interesting nationally. Bill, maybe you can show me some television ratings that would uh, contradict what, what Tim and I are saying. But I, I'm personally worried about the overall health of the rivalry long term. And we'll see what what uh, the future brings. I mean, this year, Ohio or Michigan is is basically rebuilding, and uh, they have a pretty tough schedule. I think they open with Washington. They see Wisconsin in the first half of the season. You don't feel though, uh, Bill, that that Harbaugh's on the hot seat in any way and a slow start this season. You don't think the the seat could heat up for him there at all? I guess it could. I just haven't I haven't gotten any indication out of Ann Arbor that they're upset with with what he's doing. I think there's a small segment of the fan base because you see them. What you mentioned, some of the things that Ari gets into on Twitter um, when it comes to this rivalry, and and you do see a smattering of Michigan fans. I think agreeing with him that Michigan does not care enough about being a big time college football program and doesn't care enough about trying to beat Ohio State, hmm. which, which I agree with. Um, but but in large part, I'm not sure that that's the overwhelming sentiment for the fan base. I think they're kind of okay at the moment winning, you know, nine or 10 games a year, which is nothing to sneeze at. It's, it's hard to do in college football, mm-hmm. finishing second in the division or third, depending on whether they beat Penn State and then like going to play in the Outback Bowl against Alabama or whoever loses the SEC or who's a second in the SEC West that year. Um, <laughs> Which is like a fine existence, I think, if you're okay with not ever competing for national championships. If that's something you care about, then then I think Michigan's fan standards should be higher. And if they were, then Harbaugh would be on the hot seat. He's not been awful there, right. but at, at a certain point, like your record against Ohio State has to matter. It sure as hell matters here. We've we've seen that throughout <laughs> Ohio State's history. That right, you know right. that's like the, that's been the deciding factor for some coaches in their careers. Oh yeah, how you do against Michigan and. Maybe that's not a fair standard to hold coaches to, and maybe it, it creates unfair expectations when you try to look at Michigan through the lens of how Ohio State sees itself. And that's hard to do with every program because Ohio State operates on a different level from the majority of the sport. But in my mind, Michigan can be that. And maybe there is a, an, a Michigan expert who can lay out 50 reasons for me why they can't ever be among the elite in college football. But I just have a very hard time with all their resources and their brand, their location, seeing how they, they couldn't become that if they put the right plan in place and the plan starts with the head coach. So I think he should be on the hot seat. I just don't get the feeling that he is at all. And it would take probably another year or two, at least of, of what they've had over the last five years to, to actually put him on it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, what are they paying him? Eight, eight million bucks a year. Yeah, $1 yeah. million dollars for each win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They Well, assuming the schedule is played as planned, and we'll get to that in a moment. They would open at Washington. Their Big Ten opener is against Wisconsin, uh, followed by Penn State the following week. Both those games are played in the big house, and they travel to Sparty at Minnesota and Purdue. That's a pretty rough stretch there. I don't know. You know, just given their losses, who they're replacing, Harbaugh could be, he could, he could have three or four losses by the midway point. 
just, just one last thing. I thought what you said was interesting, Bill, about, about um, is it J.J. McCarthy, their, their quarterback out of uh, Chicago who's coming in? You know, I find that a curious comment. And I've heard it from a, a few different people about, about, you know, the quarterback. But, like, right, like, like Harbaugh is supposed to be the quarterback whisperer. And, you know, Dylan McCaffrey was his hand-picked kid out of uh, Colorado who comes from a football family. And like, he's supposed to be – you know, the next stud and Shea Patterson was a five-star kid and Harbaugh was going to be able to do wonders with him in a short period of time. And he had a great season at Mississippi and, you know, Brandon Peters was a really good quarterback and has and now looks like he's playing better at Illinois than he was at Michigan. And so I think the quarterback thing is, is a funny thing um, that, that, you know, uh, Harbaugh is supposed to be better at grooming these quarterbacks than he's been. Um, but I just don't know, what's going on there. Like, I don't know why these quarterbacks aren't better. And then you look at a, a guy like Ryan day who has done as well as he's done with the quarterbacks that he's had, and maybe arguably they're better. Um, and, but you know, I, I, I wonder if, if Harbaugh is as good of a quarterback coach as, as people say. It's a fair point you bring up. Cause I know I find myself wondering the same thing after the 2014 national championship game, Ari and I did a road trip through the South sort of driving back from Dallas to Columbus. And we took the long way through the South and came back up and we did a lot of uh, recruiting stories. It was a fun trip, but one of the stops we did was uh, I believe it's Stratford high school in Houston, Texas, which is where Andrew Luck went to high school. And we went there because Harbaugh had just gotten hired. And my thought was like, well, all right, here we go. The, the QB guru is coming to Michigan Michigan's going to get ready to have a decade of NFL quarterbacks. And I wanted to go to Stratford High to figure out how Harbaugh got Andrew Luck and, and what went into that and if he's going to start doing the same thing at Michigan. And I, I guess he got the guys. like He got Brandon Peters, who was a pretty good quarterback uh, recruit at the time, and he actually ended up starting. He's the, only, he's the only quarterback that Harbaugh has recruited out of high school that has started for him since he arrived at Michigan before the 2015 season, which is kind of crazy. He's been there five years and he's gotten three starts out of a quarterback he recruited out of high school. Um, It's obviously okay to get transfers because Ohio state has done it. And and I think you can live that way to a certain extent. And they identified Shea Patterson and didn't develop him all that, all that well, I would say. And I think he was a a victim of, of some identity crisis happening with the offense as well. Mm -hmm. But to have get three starts out of Brendan Peters and to have Dylan McCaffrey, I think, going into his third year on campus and it hasn't started. Joe Milton, I think, is pretty good too. I, we saw a little bit of him at the end of the game here in Columbus a couple of years ago, and, and mm-hmm. I thought you know it was garbage time, but he looked he, – he popped a little bit, I thought. I think they have talented guys there. I just don't know what the disconnect is, and, and maybe it starts with the idea that, that we just had Harbaugh up on this pedestal as a quarterback coach because of Andrew Luck and, and because of what he did with Colin Kaepernick in San Francisco too that perhaps was just a little misleading and, and maybe that's, that's the fault of, of us in the media for, for making him out to be something that he wasn't actually, because it is totally baffling to me that they have had so much quarterback uh, instability is probably too strong of a word, but the fact that they haven't recruited out of high school and developed guys at this point in his tenure doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Player development across the board, I think has been somewhat questionable for Michigan. If you look at a player like Donovan Peoples-Jones, right? He was the number one wide receiver mm-hmm. in his class and what is barely, almost didn't get drafted. What, he's sixth round to the, to the Browns? So, yeah, interesting. Okay. Why don't we spin it forward to the 2020 season? Bill, you're probably tired of answering questions about COVID-19, but we actually have to go there with you because uh, it hangs over everything, every aspect of life, of course. If you'll pardon the pun, let's do a, a quick temperature check 
of college football relative to, uh, to, to COVID-19. We know that many programs, including Ohio State, have been allowing voluntary on-campus workouts for the last few weeks now. We know the NCAA Division I Council has officially approved the Football Oversight Committee's six-week preseason practice plan. That would involve getting Ohio State back to required workouts July 13th. And under that plan, the traditional fall camp would begin, at least in theory, August 7th. At the same time, we're hearing about major spikes in COVID-19 cases throughout the heart of major college football country in states like, well, Ohio, but especially Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Arizona. We know that 37 football players at Clemson have tested positive for coronavirus recently. At LSU, another 30 players had to be isolated because of COVID-19 concerns. University of Texas had 13 of Tom Herman's players test positive. At Kansas State, they've had to pause voluntary workouts for two weeks because 14 players there tested positive. So much of the optimism for an on-time start to the season from just a few weeks ago has since kind of gone out the door by these recent developments. Bill, as we sit here today on July 1st, can you give us your best guess as to what the college football season is going to look like in 2020? My, my best guess would be that it is delayed in some capacity. Maybe it doesn't start until the second weekend or third weekend of September or, or perhaps even the beginning of October. And then they only play eight to 10 games instead of the normal 12. Mm -hmm. And all of those games are either regional games or end or conference games, probably more likely that they're all conference games. I think they might be a little easier for everybody. It's just really hard for me. And I, I always hesitate to say this because for some reason, when you say something like this, it gets misconstrued as you like hoping this is the case. And yeah. I can promise you that I, <laughs> that it's, I do not hope in any way, shape or form that there is not a football season, but I can't wrap my head around the idea that it's like just going to be a normal season and they're going to fly all over the country and they're going to play 12 games and there's going to be mm. championships and, and bowl games and playoffs as we've come to know it. Just really hard for me to wrap my head around that. And I say that with the understanding that things keep changing very rapidly because I, I felt really good about their, like a lot of people I think felt really good about their being definitely being a college football season probably two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. And I still feel okay about it. Part of that is because I, I tend to be optimistic, I think, anyway. But I, I still feel okay about it. But I definitely don't feel as, as good about it as I felt two or three weeks ago because, like you mentioned, some of those spiking numbers. And I think some of those are, are easily explainable and some of them aren't. And, you know, I think people can maybe do a better, better job of doing their part to help keep those numbers down. But it just it, it makes things a little more murky for me. So I, I still think they're going to play. I, I think a spring season has to be on the table, even if it's on the table as a last resort. But they have to start making decisions here. You mentioned that July 13th date for the six week run up. Like that's two weeks. Two, less weeks. Than two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so like I, I can't. Are they going to say like July 12th? Like, all right, guys, here we go. I, 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 it feels to me like they have the rest of this week. You have the holiday coming up. And I feel like not too far removed from that holiday. We need to have an answer on whether or not July 13th is still the date or if it's going to get mm -hmm. pushed back a week or two. And, if it gets pushed back a week or two, I think it's okay. It doesn't mean there's not going to be a season, but I just think these coaches and these players and these college programs need a little more clarity on where this thing's going because we're pretty close to that deadline. It doesn't feel like there is any clarity. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at a tweet here from Austin Ward of Letterman Row from a couple of weeks back, and he says, decisions are still a couple of weeks away. And this is a couple of weeks ago, so you know, very soon. But the momentum for a conference-only schedule is real. He says multiple sources have indicated the Big Ten is looking at the possibility of a ten-game league-only slate. Bill, you you mentioned that that I that that idea, eight to ten games. Are you hearing the same thing? Are, are your sources indicating a 
a 10-game league-only slate? And, and if so, which Big Ten West opponent would you like to see added to the Ohio State schedule to complete that 10-game slate? That's really the question. Yeah, I mean, that that's uh, – Austin probably has a little more information on it than I do, but that that's what I've heard too, to 10 games, league-only – whether or not that starts on time, and I think September 5th is, is technically week one. I don't know if it would start then or get pushed back or what. Mm-hmm. I, but I do think that's the most likely outcome of all this is truncated season and you only play conference games. Yeah. Selfishly, I would like Ohio State to play the best teams from the West because I'm not living and dying with every snap and, and don't particularly <laughs> care about the outcome of the game. I just want to be entertained as it happens. Like us. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I would love to see them uh, play Minnesota for sure. Yeah. If they do do conference only, it'd be interesting. Like that's not a, that's not a short trip. No. So it's a 13 hour drive if teams are busing. And, and obviously it's a, it's a decent enough flight from here to Minneapolis too, but I'd love to see Ohio state play uh, Minnesota I'd love to see them play Purdue again and get a rematch of that game from 2018 going. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of sick of watching Wisconsin, to be honest. Yeah. But they are, I mean, there's, I I don't really want to watch Iowa. Yeah. Well, they're already on the schedule anyway. Yeah. Illinois is not good. Northwestern is not good. I guess I'd have to pick Wisconsin. Yeah. I, I, I want to see Wisconsin, Minnesota and Purdue for sure. And I guess I toss on Wisconsin there because you'd still want a, a good opponent on a good game. Well, I know Purdue and Ohio State have the same off date, October mm-hmm. 3rd, which that would be an easy plug in there. Now, I guess you know the, the question of where that game would be played would be a big one, right? Because if it's a trip to West Lafayette, which is a haunted house for Ohio State. I mean, I don't know what the hell happens there, but there are gremlins or whatever, uh, little Boilermaker gremlins that just thinks just goes to shit for Ohio State when they travel to West Lafayette. And that goes all the way back to the 80s. I can I can give you examples of, of teams in the 80s that, that went there and just completely lost it. Now, if it's going to be a Wisconsin, uh, I they don't have the same off date. I would assume that game would then be put at the front of the schedule. So we're talking about a season opener with Wisconsin, that would be the what the September the nineteenth. In theory, you get Rutgers and then Iowa, Michigan State, Penn State. Ouch! That would be a rough start to the season. Tim, what are your what are your thoughts here on on what the season's going to look like in twenty twenty? Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, it seems to me to make perfect sense. Um, I have two 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 comments to it. One is is that I think there will be, I, I think that there there will be some effect from the pro sports so in other words what is major league baseball doing what is the nba doing what is the nfl doing um you know i think over the course of the next couple of months as those uh franchises and those leagues start to open up and start to do some things and we start to kind of get a feel for what happens in stadiums and how it's working i think it will have an impact on on college sports as well um and so you know remains to be seen how those things roll out but um, I think I think they will um, they will have an effect. Um, and then the other thing is is that you know just talking about the schedule and who else Ohio State could play and and about driving and about a certain team in Indiana who probably isn't going to be able to fly all around the country. Wouldn't it be interesting if Ohio State had a Notre Dame game <laughs> added to its schedule, oh. given that you can drive there relatively easily? I like that idea. 
yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. That's why I said that's what I said about the the regional thing. That's what that's what I had in mind when I it wasn't uh, it wasn't Ohio State playing four MAC teams. It was Ohio State <laughs> playing Notre Dame. Yeah, I really want to see that Toledo game. You know, I've been dying to see that one. Um, well, what would be interesting to me is a sport in college football that moves like you know at glacier speeds, right? At like plate tectonics move faster than than college football. This is going to force the game to be very nimble in a way that it's never been before. If I can mention one thing about of course, uh, Notre Dame, um, because I've been thinking about this, if, if this season does change in a way, I think a lot of us think it's going to change, which means that Ohio State's not going to play at Oregon this year. Mm-hmm. And there's like there's not really an opening for them to play again until like after 2027. And I guess I should look at Oregon's schedule before I make this point. But Ohio State has an upcoming home and home with Notre Dame in 2022 and 2023. And I'm wondering if it would be even possible to like flip flop the Notre Dame home and home with the Oregon home and home and play Notre Dame the next two years and then play Oregon the two years after that. Oregon's uh, Oregon's got Georgia in 2022 in a neutral field. And in 2023, their best non-conference game is Texas Tech. Uh, maybe they wouldn't want to play Ohio State and Georgia in the same year. I wouldn't want to. <laughs> I but so. <laughs> um, the idea that they could you could regionalize the schedule, bump up that series, move back this complicated West Coast series with Oregon, like popped in my head the other day. And I don't know if that's possible, but it's in the language of the contracts. I'm not I'm not a lawyer, but it's just a fun idea that that popped into my head. And I wonder if it'd be possible for Ohio State oh, to try. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that would be making uh, what lemonade out of lemons, as, as they say. That would be great. Uh, well, hey, speaking of future non-conference opponents, uh, Ohio State just agreed to this home-and-home home with Alabama for 2027 and 2028. And we know the Crimson Tide is going to come to Columbus in 2027. Buckeyes visit Tuscaloosa in 2028. This is obviously great news for college football fans. I mean, who doesn't love an early season non-conference clash of the Titans? But Bama is only the most recent non-conference blue blood to be added to Ohio State's upcoming schedule. Bill, you mentioned Notre Dame is already on the future schedules. Uh, home and homes with Oregon, uh, in theory, they would play them this year and then next year. Texas, Washington, they're also on future Ohio State schedules. Uh, and in fact, the Buckeyes now have multiple non-conference opponents from the Power Five on the schedule starting in 2025 when they play both Texas and Washington. Bill, should we take it as a sign that playoff expansion is on the horizon if Gene Smith is willing to put this many serious challenges on Ohio State's non-conference schedule? I think so. And I think that's also why you've seen programs like Alabama that have historically avoided home and homes are suddenly adding them. Uh, right. Part of that too could be they know when Nick Saban's going to retire and he'll be gone before those happen. But <laughs> I, th- I think this is a pretty strong indication that, that that will be the case. I believe the playoff contract runs out in 2026, 20, right? Yeah. Okay. So, and, and Ohio State's first um, double dip, I guess, against Power Five programs is the year before that in 2025. So it doesn't line up totally. But, but I think this is part of it. You'll, in theory, an expanded playing field will increase your margin for error. And mm. if you have an increased margin for error, then you can add on these marquee games that will fatten your pockets. So <laughs> it, it, makes total, it makes total sense to me that that would be the case and, and playoff expansion or expected playoff expansion would be the impetus for that. I don't really care what the motivation is, to be honest, because it's about damn time we've started seeing these kind of games get scheduled Amen. on campuses and, and not having you know, Ohio, like for Ohio State and TCU playing each other in, in Jerry World instead of playing on each other's campuses or, you know, I'm, I'm on alert to see if they try to make this Oregon a one-off neutral site if they just can't get it done this year and can't find a way no. to move it. I hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. But the more more marquee on-campus games 
across the country, the better, in my opinion. Great. Tim, any thoughts on, uh, on how Ohio State is scheduled in the non-conference in the coming years? Yeah, I just I think I would totally agree. The more kind of these tougher non-conference games, we had a we had a home and away scheduled with Georgia at one point and it got canceled. Um, I was bummed about that. And so I think it's great. Uh, the point I made to you, Zach, which I'll make here is, is that the only thing that would make it better uh, from my standpoint would be that if we could figure out a way to get the Clemsons or the Georgias or the Alabamas to come north in November or December <laughs> play in our weather instead of it always being warm and sunny and, and conditions great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they don't play in those conditions and we do. Uh, and I'd love to see Alabama come to the shoe uh, in late November uh, and see how that turns out. <laughs> I think it's an added, I think it's an added uh, fact to the game. Yeah, they can't. They can't do that because they got they got to play their FCS game in November. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the Citadel, that rivalry with the Citadel, yeah. we can't. You know, we can't take that off the schedule. <laughs> All right. Well, let's spin this forward to the 2020 Ohio State season. Uh, Bill, we'd love to get your take on uh, what the fortunes of our, of our beloved Buckeyes uh, are going to look like this season. And we're going to assume, of course, that there will be a season for the purposes of this exercise. You wrote an excellent state of the program piece on Ohio State for The Athletic last month, in which you broke down every position group, coaching change, as well as, as well as the 2020 schedule. I encourage our listeners to subscribe to The Athletic and check out that piece, by the way. Bill, I'd like to start on the defensive side of the ball because I think that's where most of the questions are, uh, especially with the departures of Chase Young, Jeffrey Okuda, Damon Arnett, Malik Harrison, Jordan Fuller, Davon Hamilton, Jayshon Cornell, and Robert Landers. As you noted in your State of the Program piece, with the departure of that group, the Buckeyes lose 53% of their tackles for loss, 53% of their interceptions, 62% of their quarterback sacks from 2019. But it's interesting because the prevailing sentiment seems to be among fans and, and a lot of beat writers, you know, folks in your profession, Bill, is that Ohio State defense, with what the Ohio State offense is going to be, the defense doesn't need to be great in 2020. They just need to be good enough. Now, I'm not sure I agree with that sentiment. I'm still figuring out if I do. My question to you, though, is, is there a world where the Ohio State defense can actually be great again this season? And what would that look like? I think it's possible. Last year's defense was really good, like historically very yeah. good. And uh, I on our last episode of, of four to six with A and B, Ari shared this tidbit that I wasn't aware of, but he was talking with Nick Baumgartner, who is one of the people who covers Michigan uh, for the athletic. He also covers the Detroit Lions. He's a really smart football guy, Nick mm -hmm. is. Um, really, really uh, in tune with like X's and O's kind of stuff. And he was watching Ohio State film uh, for some reason, probably because he's like me and he can't help himself. Um, <laughs> And he, he said that he thinks Ohio State's defense last year was the best defense he's ever watched. And Nick's probably – I'm 31. I think Nick's probably a little older than me, maybe like 35, 36. And he said it's the best defense he's ever watched. Wow. And I don't know if I felt that during the season, watching them week to week. I certainly felt they were very good, especially compared to what they were the year before. And if you looked at the numbers, they, they matched up very well historically. But then when you – I think if you like sit back and reflect on the season as a whole and – the, the changes they made, the coaching staff changes, some of the player turnover that they had, and and to be as good as they were was was really, frankly, astonishing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it was a really high bar, and I'm not sure they can get back to that next year, but you can still be great even if you're a step or even a two steps 
below what that defense ultimately became last year. So if that happens, uh, there's a couple of things that go into it. I, I think it's because uh, a guy like Zach Harrison has the year two that we saw from guys like Chase Young and Nick Bosa, mm-hmm. where there was no doubt about it that they were on the path to be top five draft picks the following year after their junior seasons. Both those guys flashed kind of immediately when they showed up as freshmen, but then as sophomores, they really blossom. Mm-hmm. And I think Zach, if he takes that kind of step, that goes a long way in making up for that percentage of sacks you're missing out on that you laid out um, a few minutes ago. And the, the biggest one for me, I think, though, is Josh Proctor and how he fills the shoes of Jordan Fuller because the way that they changed the defense last year when Greg Madison and Jeff Halfley sort of switched this to this single high cover three kind of shell where it just it's really hard to hit, hit big plays against a defense that's structured that way. Right. Um, especially for a lot of teams in the Big Ten that don't have the skill to match up with Ohio State. It's a little, a little easier for a, a Clemson or an Alabama maybe, but in the Big Ten specifically, it's really hard to hit big plays against the caliber of athlete Ohio State has in that defensive structure. But it felt to me last year that Jordan Fuller was like very underappreciated for what he did as the eraser on the back end of that defense. And he wasn't the flashiest guy in the world by any means. And I think he ended up being, I don't know if he was a seventh or sixth round pick, I forget, um, to the LA Rams, but he got drafted. Uh, he wasn't like Malik Hooker flashy, but he was great at making sure that nothing got behind him. And, right. and if you remember back to 2018, that was like the biggest problem with the defense oh, was God. that people kept running behind everybody. I still have and hitting all these big plays. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to bring it back up. <laughs> but Jordan Fuller, I think one week Jeff Halfley called him the eraser, which is like the perfect way to describe what Jordan Fuller was last year. You just did not hit big plays against Ohio State because if for some reason anything did break out, Jordan Fuller was there to stop it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying Josh Proctor can't do that. But he hasn't been asked to do it yet. And he gets compared to Malik Hooker because I think he's got great range and he's very explosive. But I want to know, like, can he run and can he tackle and can he read plays where he's not putting himself in bad positions? Because he he showed a tendency to do that last year. I'm willing to let it slide a little bit because he was a young guy sort of experiencing things for the first time. But if if he is not taking steps forward in that regard, then I have a hard time seeing Ohio State's defense – being great because in my mind if you don't have that then you're more susceptible to giving up some big plays and you can still be good but i don't think you'd be great i actually had four things on my on my personal list of, of things that needed to happen probably three of these four things need to happen for high state to be elite again in 2020 you've already mentioned two of them which is the similar growth trajectory for zach harrison as a chase young i also had josh proctor taking that next step to, to maybe being a Big Ten caliber safety, all Big Ten caliber safety. That's certainly what, what Jordan Fuller was, right? First team, all Big Ten safety. I, I feel like we need to see Teron Vincent make that Marshawn Lattimore emergence from injury to stardom at defensive tackle. I think we need to see that happen. And then I, and then I think we also need to see Baron Browning kind of f- finally fulfill his potential as a great, you know, see ball, get ball type linebacker. I assume, and let me know if I'm wrong about this, he's going to be making the transition to the will in, in this year's defense. Is that confirmed? It's not confirmed, but I would also also assume the same thing. It's kind of, it's the, one of the bad parts about not having springs. You can't be right. super certain about who's going to play where, but he was outside. Like he, he was talking about playing outside, whether that's Sam or Will or stand up rush end like i just he, he won't be i don't think at mike as much as he has been the last two years gotcha so i i feel like if three of those four things happen or certainly all four of them then there's some upside there there's a, there's the, the possibility ohio state could be another dominant unit in 2020 tim what are your thoughts on the defense 
agree with everything all you guys said. I, I think it's going to be tough, right? Because when I was thinking about this question, I, I kind of thought back and I thought, man, is there any team ever that has had the nine-year run that Ohio State has had going from Joey Bosa to Nick Bosa to Chase Young? I can't think of another team that has had three top three picks consecutively who all played one after another after another. Right. I think that's hard to replace. I think Zach Harrison could do it, um, and maybe he does. But, you know, maybe he's just really, really good, and he's not, you know, he's not a, a Nick Bosa or a Joey Bosa type player. Mm -hmm. um, remains to be seen. I also think Tyreek Smith is really good. Um, and hasn't, you know, kind of shown himself yet, but this could be the year that he sort of steps up and, and gets there. And then, uh, and then, yeah, look, I think, I think the back end is going to be good. I have a lot of confidence in Josh Proctor. I saw the same thing. We all saw him miss the tackle against Trevor Lawrence, uh, you know, against Clemson that really mm -hmm. hurt that went for a long touchdown. I think if he cleans that up a little bit, I think he can be really, really good. So I think the defense start in my mind starts off as very good. Uh, and the question is, can they become elite? Um, and that, you know, just remains to be seen. Bill, what does Ohio State have at corner in Seven Banks and Cameron Brown? I like both those guys a lot. Um, and they're they're a little different. Banks is, I think, a little more physical. He's a little bigger. If you watch them, uh, we, the, we did get to see the first spring practice where they're just like sort of in shells and, and helmets, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but Seven Banks looked huge, like even bigger than, than he looked uh, last year when I thought he looked pretty big. He's a really well put together cornerback, really athletic, and a, a guy who in high school I think had some injury issues, or otherwise he would have been ranked a little higher. I like him a lot, and, and Cam Brown. I saw him tweeting the other day that he's the fastest cornerback in the country, the fastest defensive back in the country. I don't know <laughs> I if that's that true, <laughs> but he's pretty fast. He's, right. I mean, he can he can really run. Um, I don't know if it's Denzel Ward level or not, but he is. Something close to that, I think, from a pure speed standpoint. I'm not talking about the corner that, that Denzel became. I don't want to say that just yet. But wow. with those with those two guys and Sean Wade back, which is like the biggest addition Huge. anyone made in the country, I think. I think they'll be good at corner. The, the thing that I don't know, and I've said this before on our podcast, and I think I've written it too. I might have even written it in the state of the program story. Sean Wade came back because he wants to be a first-round pick and he wants to play outside. But he was so good at nickel last year. Oh. Like it was, he was the most important piece of the defense, in my opinion, because he was so versatile. He could ask him to do a bunch of different things. He did them all well, um, and he could cover what I, I think most weeks is the hardest person to cover on the field, which is that either detached tight end or you know, slot receiver. He can do that, and he's pretty physical. And I just don't know if that's like in the bag for Seven Banks or Cam Brown. I, right. I'm not saying it's not. I just don't know if we have enough information to say whether it is or it isn't. Hmm. And if it's not are they going to be willing to put Sean Wade back in that spot to make the defense a little more sound? And I think they would be, I, I think Sean would be up for it because as much as he did come back to improve his draft stock, he came back to graduate, which is important. Doesn't get talked about enough. And I, I, he came back, I think, cause he wants to win a national title. Mm -hmm. So if, if moving back to nickel is what's going to get Ohio state a national title or give him a better shot, I think he'd eventually do it. So it's probably the biggest question for me on the defense, to be honest is, how, how those three guys, or if there's a fourth in the mix like Marcus Williamson or if maybe one of the young guys, Legend Cavazos or, or Lathan Ransom, now that he's on the team, like works his way into there. But, but Banks, Brown, and Wade, how the three of them are kind of deployed is the biggest question for me because I, I just don't want to assume that you can bump Wade outside and like figure out his replacement because he was so good last year. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a darn shame we didn't have a spring, right? Because maybe we'd have some more answers there 
Tim, do you have any other comments on the Ohio State defense before we look, we look at the offense? No, really happy Kerry Coombs is back. Love that guy. I think he's going to do great. You know, if anything, I think that's a bit of shot in the arm to the to the whole defense. So, um, yeah, it should be fun to watch. Bill wanted to get your take. What, what are your thoughts on Combs as a first-year defensive coordinator? I think he'll be good in the job. Uh, I, I like Kerry a lot. Everyone everyone who ever gets a chance to talk to Kerry loves him, and and with good reason. He's, he's just a very personable, um, entertaining guy, a pretty genuine guy, I think. Um, it's hard. It's, it's difficult. It can be difficult to come across people who feel genuine when you're covering major college sports or, or major sports in general, but, but Kerry Combs is definitely one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a personal standpoint, I think it's great. He's a great recruiter. They'll lose nothing there. Um, they might, might even improve a little bit, to be honest. And not to say they were bad last year, but but Kerry's a great recruiter with a great track record. Good good developer. He's never been a coordinator. He's right. he was a head coach in high school. And I'm assuming when he was that, he called plays. But this is obviously a different level. Right. I don't think there's going to be a major learning curve for him. And I think that Greg Madison will be a pretty big help with sort of bringing Kerry up to speed on what has become Ohio State's base defense because that's different from the last time Kerry was here. Mm-hmm. When he was at Tennessee, they did a lot of different stuff. I don't, I don't, there's not anything that Ohio State does that, that will be unfamiliar to Kerry Combs. Uh, the thing that's happened because of the lost spring and because we don't know what the lead-up to the season is going to be like is I'm not sure how much of his own stamp he'll get to put on the defense in the first year. Right, And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I just think it's possible that they could come out next year and basically look, if not identical, but very similar to, to what they looked at last year in terms of everything they do just because they didn't have the time to install things. I tried to ask Ryan Day and Kerry Combs about this. It was either in March or April. We did some phone calls with those guys that were nice enough to give us some time. And I just said, like, how much can you actually teach football in this scenario where you're all over the country and you're doing it via Zoom? Right. And they said, not not very much at all. And <laughs> I, I don't I don't think they were being coy with that. I think it's true. Now, they're lucky that they have guys back who were experienced in what they did last year, but in terms of Kerry Combs mixing it up a little bit or bringing some new things, I think he could be held back a little bit, at least at the beginning of the season. Maybe over time and throughout the year, he can try to install some things. Because that's the thing about it. Their base defense last year, the single high, cover one, cover three, is perfectly fine and sufficient to beat just about everybody in their league. I think you need to mix it up a little bit when you play Penn State, a little bit when you play Michigan, and then definitely when you start playing in the playoff against those caliber of teams. And that, that's where Kerry Combs, I think, expertise and tweaks come in. So he has some time to figure out what he can implement given the, the truncated buildup to the season. Great. Your former Cleveland.com colleague, Doug Lee Maurice, thinks Kerry Combs has uh, head coaching ambitions. Do you see that? Yeah, I do. He's. Uh, I know Doug says this, and I've made the point too. Kerry is not as old as you think he is, right? Um, because of his white hair, I think he's <laughs> fifty-five, maybe. Might even be a little younger than that. Yeah, I think he does. Uh, on what level? I'm not sure. I, I thought if uh, when there was some smoke to Luke Fickle possibly going to Cincinnati, uh-huh. if that were to happen, if I were Cincinnati, like Kerry Combs probably would have been the first phone call I made. Yeah. Beyond, like now that he was back in college, or even if he was in the NFL. I think he has it. He has the charisma for it, the organization for it, um, the, the football mind for it, for sure. I think he'd be a great head coach. Um, I don't know if he'd have the time to build up to be a guy who's coaching at a top-tier Power 5 program, mm. but a place like Cincinnati, smaller programs in the Big Ten, for sure. I think you could do that tomorrow if you wanted to. Well, I hope we can keep him around for at least a couple of years before he makes that move. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it'd be good for Ryan Day could use some stability on his coaching yeah. staff. It's just uh, 
maybe maybe don't uh, root for Ohio State's defense to be truly elite because if it is, you might lose Kerry Combs after a year. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let's move over to the offense. Bill, I want to start with what I think is your specialty. You wrote in your state of the program piece that you thought left tackle Thayer Mumford, center Josh Myers, and right guard Wyatt Davis all have all-American potential in 2020. I, I've heard you say on 4-6 to six with A&B that you think Ohio State is probably get, could very well have the best offensive line in the country. Can you talk a little bit more about just how good you think this offensive line is going to be and maybe put it in a context with, with other great lines Ohio State has had there in the recent past? I think the best line they've had since I've been covering the team was probably 2014 yeah. when it was Jacoby Bourne at the center and the guards were Pat Alfine and Billy Price. Taylor Decker was left tackle and Daryl Baldwin was, was the right tackle. I think mm-hmm. that was a they, four of those five were back the following year, but I thought they were a little worse off at right tackle with Chase Farris in 2015. And they haven't really quite been to that level until last year. Last year was really good. Um, but I would give a nod to 2014 because they won a national title largely on the backs of their running game. Mm-hmm. So this group coming up, I think, has – I would be disappointed, I think, if I were an Ohio State fan, if they're not better than 2014. And that's not to disparage what the 2014 group was. Or And, and I've had some people say that the 2013 group was really good. I didn't cover them, but if someone yeah. wants to tell me that I'm wrong and it's 2013 was better, I'll listen to you. But this group with the guys you mentioned, Wyatt Davis is the best guard in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh Myers, I think, could become the best center in the country. Creed Humphrey at Oklahoma is pretty good. But I think Josh is right there, and he'll be in the conversation to win the Remington Trophy. Thayer Munford, as long as he's healthy, and that's a big caveat because he was not healthy for much of last right. year. And if you went back and watched his tape, that, that shows up sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, if he's healthy, he had some back issues. If he's through that, maybe this time off helped him. He is among the most athletic tackles in the country. All-American potential, like I wrote. I think he's got first-round draft pick potential if he puts together a truly healthy season. I I honestly do think he's that good. And then you're replacing Jonah Jackson with Harry Miller, who was a former five-star prospect, and Ryan Day and his teammates like could not speak in more glowing terms about Harry Miller than they have to this point. Mm -hmm. And then the right tackle is most likely Nicholas Petit-Frere, and if it's not him, then it's Parrish Johnson, it was an incoming five-star freshman that people have felt as necessary to compare to Orlando Pace, which I think is a little nuts, but <laughs> Paris is still very good. So uh, though that five, whether it's Nick or Paris at right tackle and the other four guys I mentioned, uh, I, I have a very hard time seeing another team across the country that, that's assembling that kind of talent on one offensive line. And I think they'll have some decent depth too. Maybe not quite as good as last year, but but still pretty good, young, but, but still pretty talented. Mm. I think it's going to be great. That's why I'm not super concerned about running back, even though you're losing J.K. Dobbins, you don't have anything close to him from a talent standpoint, that right. they're going to be so good and so dominant and athletic up front that I don't really think it's going to matter that much. You wrote a good piece about Nicholas Petit Ferrer. I think it dropped on The Athletic last week. He's has all the physical tools that you need from a tackle, but also seems to be a very cerebral player. What did you learn about Petit Ferrer in writing that piece? Uh, I learned that he's a thinker. And that can get in the way sometimes. Um, he, he is a perfectionist, I think, in every sense of the word. And while that's great, and, and more of us, I think, could stand to be perfectionists, uh, it can get in the way of development a little bit in, in the sense that you're going to fail. And I think on, 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 at some point you have to accept that. 
and then use it and move forward. And I think there were times for Nick in the past where it was hard for him to sort of accept the fact that he has to learn from failure. Right. And I think he's past that. And I think he probably would have said he got past that sometime last summer before the, the 2019 season. And that's a big hurdle, I think, for alignment, especially one like Nick who came in highly touted, very talented, sort of all the raw talent in the world, but he just wasn't quite big enough to play. Hmm. He was 268 pounds when he got here. Wow. And, and got up, I think, last year to about 295, but it's been a struggle for him to keep on weight. I guess it's just the, the way his body works. It's hard for him to keep on that kind of weight. So when you're playing light and you're in practice against Chase Young and Jonathan Cooper and Tyreek <laughs> Smith, and I mean, I can't imagine it's very fun. I bet you get knocked around a little bit. So that can mess with the guy's confidence, I think. And Nick just needed to, one, get bigger, physically get bigger, and then sort of grow a little bit mentally because he's got everything else. If, if the little bit you get to watch him play, you can see it. There, there's slashes of it. Um, Greg Stoudraw was always talked very highly of him. Hmm. His high school coaches talk very highly of him. He's a, he's a great kid. He's super smart. I think he cares about wanting to get better. It's just taken him a couple of years to, to get to this point. But I, I have no reason to believe that he's not ready now to be Ohio State starting right tackle. Fantastic. Well, you mentioned him earlier, Trey Sermon. And, and I wanted to talk a little bit about what you think Ohio State is going to have in the running game. As you mentioned, they lose a 2,000-yard rusher in J.K. Dobbins. Sermon is the transfer from Oklahoma. And I guess the presumed starter this year, or certainly a promises to get the lion's share of the carries. We talked to Doug Maurice a couple weeks back, and he was pretty lukewarm on the addition of Sermon. I've been calling him a more than serviceable option of Sermon. I also think, you know, uh, Sermon suffered a little bit playing with probably the two best running quarterbacks in college football each of the last two seasons. He lost, there's no shame in, in losing carries to Kyler Murray, a, you know, transcendent talent. But what are your expectations for the Oklahoma transfer this season, Bill, and in the running game in general? I'm probably a little higher on Trey Sermon than Doug is. I'm actually in the middle of watching uh, Trey right now. Um, he had, it was like 60 something touches last year, 62, I think. Hmm. And it was an injury shortened season. So I'm in the process of going through and watching all of those touches. And I want to do a, a film study piece on him and I'm only two games into it. So I, I haven't come to any revelations yet on, on that, but hmm. he's been uh, in the games that I have watched. And it was Houston. Who's fine. Although their defense is awful. <laughs> and uh, South Dakota, which is an FCS school, it's almost not even worth watching. But you can see the way the way that Trey moves. He seems very comfortable or more comfortable running outside, and he seems to want to bounce everything outside so far from what I've watched than, than he is comfortable running inside, interesting. which isn't an issue, but it's interesting juxtaposed to a guy like J.K. Dobbins or even Master Teague, who I think are, are pretty comfortable running between the tackles, and Master's probably more comfortable running between the tackles um, than he is bouncing things outside. So... You could have a situation where Master Teague, if he's healthy, and Trey Sermon sort of complement each other really well. Not all that dissimilar from Mike Weber and J.K. Dobbins a couple of years ago. And right. I know I know when I say that, maybe that, that brings up some bad memories of what that 2018, especially run game, looked like. I know it wasn't good, and maybe I'm in a minority a, a little bit on this. Like I, I And J.K. last year admitted to some shortcomings in 2018, and he was pressing the issue a little bit, and, and certainly he could have played better. Mm -hmm. I thought their shortcomings as a rushing offense in 2018 were much more about the offensive line than they were yeah. about the running backs. Yeah. I just don't think they were very good up front in 2018. Mm -hmm. For a lot of reasons, recruiting misses is probably chief among them. Greg Stoudrawa, I, I think, to give him some benefit of the doubt, had to make up for some poor recruiting at the end of Ed Warner's tenure, and I think they paid for that a little bit in 2018. 
and now they're better. So I think a system like that can work. I don't, I don't want to really call it thunder and lightning. I think I'd call it like thunder and then like a thunder that's not quite as loud um, <laughs> because I don't like Trey Sermon's not, he's not going to wow you with his speed. He's a pretty good one cut runner. He's, he's a little more herky jerky, I think, than a guy like JK, but he's not going to juke everyone out of their feet. But he's, he's fairly elusive and a pro football focus, I think, said that he's had two of the top 10 most elusive seasons in, in the last two years Trey Sermon has in the country. So more than capable, I think, of, of being the number one guy in Ohio State's offense. I do think it'll be more of a committee approach, and Master Teak's health is, is a big determining factor there. But I like Marcus Crowley, too. I think he, he's got a nice skill set. Seal Chambers, I'm just not sure yet. I don't think right. Mario McCall gets, gets into the mix much. But yeah. with Trey and, and Master, assuming he's healthy, I think they'll be good enough. I, I just don't. We're not in an age, in my opinion, in college football anymore where you have to be great at running back. You have to be able to run the ball. Right. But I don't think you have to be super dynamic at tailback to win a national title, especially when your quarterback is Justin Fields. Okay. Tim, any thoughts on the offensive line or, or what Ohio State's going to have at running back? No, no. I mean, my only question, Bill, would be uh, do, you see any, do you see anything from Mayan Williams? I mean, that guy is just such a tank. Yeah. Um, he reminds me a little bit of, of JK and how he runs and his size and build. Uh, maybe it's too soon for him, but, um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe something where he can fill in and, and, uh, you know, get his feet wet a little bit. So I, I wasn't at the, the, the check-in day or whatever they had when guys came back for those voluntary workouts and everyone was out there taking photos. I was actually on vacation, but I was watching them and I saw the photo of Mayan Williams and I couldn't believe it was the same guy that I watched on film when Ohio state signed him. And like, that's to his credit, like the way he's transformed himself physically in a really short period of time is super impressive. So it made me think that perhaps there's a little bit more of an opening for him to do something this year. Um, I, I'm not sure. There, there's just so much in front of him, but but he is he's kind of like a little bowling ball, right? He's yeah. he's Mike Weber was kind of like that, um, but this seems like even more physical. I think I, I don't know if Mayan's gonna try to cut around anybody, or you're not going to see the jump cuts out of him that you saw from J.K. Dobbins. But he seems to run pretty angry. And um, I think it's just like in general plays angry because he feels slated as a player and as a prospect, which is good. That's a good mindset for people to have. So I'm, I'm curious about him. I think that's the, the best way I can describe it. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you like, watch out for Maya Williams. He's going to be awesome. Cause I just, I don't think we know enough about him yet, especially if he's going to look so different physically than he's looked in high school. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, we have to get to, the one position I think that all of the most Ohio State fans are really looking forward to, and that's at quarterback with Justin Fields, the reigning Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year, a Heisman finalist. The sky would appear to be the limit for Fields in the Ohio State passing game. When we spoke to Doug a few weeks ago, he said that he felt Fields could have the best season a college quarterback has ever had. And he said Joe Burrow might have just had it, but he felt that was totally on the table for Justin Fields. What are your expectations for Fields in the Ohio State passing game? I think that Justin Fields is certainly capable of having that kind of season, whether or not Ohio State's games are close enough for him to ultimately rack up those kind of stacks. The stats, I think, is another conversation, and I'm not sure they will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he did have last year, I think I have this right, I think his, his rating, efficiency rating last year is the highest in the history of the program. And that when you have 41 touchdowns and three interceptions, <laughs> yeah. that'll happen. Um, I'm not... That is an unfair bar, and I, Doug has talked about this too, and I'm in agreement with him that interceptions are not always bad. 
And if Justin Fields goes from having three last year to like seven next year because he is being a little more courageous with his throws or aggressive with his throws, I think that's a good thing. Right. He was awesome last. He was awesome last awesome. year. Like yeah. the, the the idea that you would even expect somebody to replicate the kind of season he had last year is frankly kind of nuts. But he's capable of it for sure. And I don't know what it's going to look like from a rushing standpoint because while they're more talented behind him, they're less experienced. And I don't think you want to um, be less cautious with protecting him as a runner than they were last year because right. of of what he has potentially as a passer. Mm-hmm. Um, He's a little different, I think, than Dwayne was in terms of re- release and quickness and all that, but he can make every single throw you ask him to make and and probably is a little stronger of a thrower than, than Dwayne was. If Maybe he's a touch less accurate, but I think he's a stronger stronger thrower and even if he has a slower release. So I, I think it's out there for him. I think the best quarterback season we've ever seen at Ohio State is, is absolutely out there for him. And that might take some – context when we ultimately view it in the end depending on how long the season is and depending on what Ohio State's games look like if his, if his stats aren't 60 touchdowns like what Joe Burrow did last year still doesn't mean that he didn't have the best season for a quarterback ever like it's not only about stats it's about what it looks like it's about how he dominates games and I agree it's it's all it's all there for him to put together the, the most special season we've seen from the position at, at this program wow okay yeah I, I would hope they would be very cautious about how they deploy fields as a runner given what happened last year in the Penn State game and, and, and the impact the knee injury ultimately had on what they wanted to do against Clemson and the game plan there. But uh, another thing Doug had mentioned, and sorry to keep bringing up Doug here, I, I, I know, uh, you know. Keep you away from that guy. Yeah, keep away from that guy, right? There's the reason yeah. you left and went to the athletic, right? That's no, right, I, yeah. <laughs> No, but um, Doug had said that uh, you've you, you got to protect him, but at the same time, you got to let him be a playmaker. And you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to put, you know, reins on him in that regard. And you got to let him make plays. Would you agree with that sentiment? A hundred percent. And what, like, when last year, like, what, what, I still don't know why they were throwing the ball in the situation. Oh, throwing God. the ball when he got hurt against at Penn State. State like, that yeah. makes no, no sense. No whatsoever. sense at all. But I never felt like they were holding him back from being the playmaker that he is. And 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 Justin has never really intimated that he felt that way either. Maybe he does. And he did a good job of hiding it. I thought they were very cautious with his designed run calls, which makes total sense to me. I never thought they were saying like, hey, Justin, don't don't be you. And and I think he got more comfortable in that as the season went on. They just had that one boneheaded decision to let him drop back and throw the ball when the game was at hand. And, and he unfortunately got hurt doing that. It did, it did change their season. I think if Justin Fields is healthy, they win, they beat Clemson because they score in the red zone. I think if Justin Fields is healthy. Well, that, that was the, one of the few instances of uh, where, where we saw a, a first time head coach, I think in Ryan day it was one of the very few missteps I think he had where he showed his youth and an experience as a head coach was at the end of that Penn state game. And it, it was, I mean, not only did uh, did Fields get hurt, he fumbled the ball on the play. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it was the worst outcome you could have possibly uh, you could have possibly thought of. Tim, any comments on uh, Fields in the Ohio State passing game? No, I think I agree. I mean, obviously, with the offensive line as we've talked about and the weapons he's got outside, he's got every chance to to run for a bazillion yards and throw for a bazillion yards. So, you know, a, a part of it too is going to be. Uh, you know, at what point does he sit out? 
Um, you know, LSU had a pretty tough schedule last year, and Burrow played a fair amount. Mm-hmm. Um, if Justin Fields is on the bench at the end of the second quarter every game because, you know, Ohio State's got a big lead, then that's going to kind of take away from the possibility of that happening. But I agree with Bill that you don't have to, don't have, to have 60 touchdowns to have the best season. Uh, there's lots of other ways you can do it. All right. Bill, I wanted to ask you about one other piece that you wrote recently for The Athletic, and then we'll get you out of here. You wrote a really fun piece on the 50 greatest touchdowns in Ohio State history. I really, really enjoyed this. I'm curious, how long did it take you to compile this list? How many days, weeks of research did you put into it? It was probably, if I added it all together, it was probably the equivalent equivalent of about two weeks full of research. Um, I had done a lot of stuff online, like looking through old box scores and um, looking through some old newspapers and, and game stories and watching some highlight videos. And then I had ordered this book, this uh, Jack Park, Ohio State Encyclopedia. Oh, yeah. Ohio State Football Encyclopedia. And I ordered it when I started doing the research, but it took a long time for it to arrive. I don't know where it came from, but I got it probably about 13 days after I started doing all this research. So then I had to like go through the whole book again to make sure I wasn't missing anything too glaring. <laughs> um, and I probably ended up with about 100 or so touchdowns to sort through <clears throat> and I ended up choosing I wanted to do 100 they told me 100 was crazy um, they wanted they wanted to be 25 and I said how about 50 so we did 50 but uh, it was really fun I had a blast doing it because I, I might have said this before like I didn't grow up an Ohio State fan right um, I, I followed it from afar a little bit just like a, as a fan of college football but never anything in depth until I started covering the team in 2014 so anything that allows me to dig into the history of the program I love because I, I it's I think it's my job to know about the history of the program, obviously. So this helped a lot, but I have um, based on the comments from that story and uh, just some things I've seen recently, uh, there are a lot that I missed too. Like I almost want to do another one. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if it's going to be a redo or like 50 more or what, but <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys as, as long time Ohio state fans thought of, thought of a few that should have been on there too. So it might be something that, that I, that I dig back into. We'll see if, if we're going to have a season, maybe not. If we're in a position <laughs> where we're not going to have a season and I'm looking for stuff to do, maybe you guys might get 200 Ohio State touchdowns. Well, that was the first thing I did. Well, when I saw, I got really excited when I saw the headline. I, I think you had tweeted the, the piece and I said that dropped into my feet. I got really excited and I started thinking of which ones made the list. And then after I read the piece, yeah, I, I came up with a couple that didn't make the list. And now that, now that you've mentioned that you actually had another 50 you were considering, I'm wondering if the two that I have in mind were actually made your list. These are very personal for me, and I thought I'd share them uh, real quick. The first is, uh, it was actually the very first Ohio State Michigan game I ever watched. I was 10 years old. It was 1981. Ohio State visits the big house, unranked. Michigan's number seven in the country. Now this, I'll always remember this because this is the day that my mom and my stepdad were married, and they had the reception at my grandmother's house in Cleveland. And I went down to the basement. I was in the basement all by myself, and this is how I knew I was going to have a problem as an Ohio State fan. I was sweating bullets watching. I'm 10 years old watching this game. Arch Schleister scores the game-winning touchdown with just under three minutes to play in a six-yard scramble. Uh, he gets his foot just inside the pylon, and he gets creamed as, as, he, as he crosses the goal line. He goes flying into the snow. That should be a part of every Ohio State-Michigan game, by the way, especially games that are played in Ann Arbor. There should always be snow, and someone should go flying into it when they score the, the game-winning touchdown. I, I also remember that Al Michaels was on the call that day for ABC, which is unusual because he, did, he didn't do a lot of college football back in the day. Uh, that was very personal for me and one that I'll always remember. And it was a big win for Ohio State, an otherwise disappointing season. The second, my senior year at Ohio State, 1993, 
The Washington Huskies come to town. It's a night game. It was a beautiful, you know, uh, early September day. Washington was two years removed from a co-national championship. Back then, night games were a novelty at the shoe, right? They didn't have the lights installed now that, that they do. You can easily do a night game. They actually had to bring, Tim, do you remember this? They would bring supplemental lighting in for night games, and they would, uh, yep. it, would it would be kind of on a crane-like structure from the parking lot over, over the sides of the stadium. I uh, tailgated with some friends. I actually grew up in Columbus. I may have been a bit overserved uh, going into the stadium. Uh, that was a great game because I remember it as John Cooper's first really big win at Ohio State. Certainly his first big non-conference win. He had had a lot of disappointments up to that point. You know, Cooper had not yet to, he had yet to beat Michigan. He had yet to really win a, a big non-conference game. Ohio State was 18th in the country that night. Washington was 12th. And the play I'll remember, the touchdown that I'll remember was Butler Bonote's 49-yard touchdown that broke open a close game in the fourth quarter. That was a great, great moment for me. And, and it really, that was Ohio State's first season that I remember where they started really flashing serious NFL talent. And, and you could see Cooper starting to really get that program back to national relevance at that stage. Um, I remember that night, Big Daddy Dan Wilkinson. He was the number one pick in the draft the following year. Had a big night, Joey Galloway, another top 10 pick. So I'll always remember that game. That'll make my personal top 50. Uh, Tim, do you have any that, uh, that you uh, remember that either made the list or didn't make the list? Well, I mean, kind of back to what we were talking about earlier in culture, uh, I did think about the question. I thought about it a long time, and I came to the conclusion that my top touchdown is every touchdown against Michigan ranks as number <laughs> one, and it always will. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, Bill. Hey, listen, you've been very generous with your time. We thank you so much for, for making the time for us. Before we let you go, do you have anything coming down the pike you want to let our listeners know about? Well, I have the story on Mike Hall that's coming, and I have some things that I'm working on, but I almost don't want to say them in case anyone listens and tries to beat me to it. <laughs> All right. Um, so I have, I have a couple. Um, I'm trying to profile Matt Barnes, and and I'm hoping that comes together. Like Matt Barnes to me is it's interesting because he there's like nothing out there about him, and the idea that you can be sort of on, that far under the radar as a coach at Ohio State staff is it piques my interest. And yeah. Maybe as I dig into that, I'll find nothing interesting about Matt Barnes, but, but I'm, I'm interested to to kind of get into his backstory a little bit and his rise through coaching because I, I do think he was important last year in shoring up some special team stuff for them and and probably didn't get enough credit for the help that he, he gave Jeff Halfley in coaching the secondary. And then in the interim between Halfley leaving and Curry Combs arriving, I think he did some very important recruiting for Ohio State too. So um, I want to try to dig into some of that with, with Matt. I'm hoping I get to interview him. Um, sometime here in the next couple of weeks and, and turn around a profile on him in short order. All right, great. Well, we look forward to those pieces and the rest of your coverage in the coming season. Thanks again, Bill. And hey, maybe you might want to do this again with us sometime down the line. I would be happy to come on anytime you guys want. This, uh, this was great. I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to the South Stands, a Buckeye football podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and visit our website at southstandsosu.com.